1: Welcome to episode 35 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them.
0: I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of Musical Things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I'm a disgusting filmmaker and a bunch of other rubbish in between. You're, you're a maker of disgusting films, you're not a disgusting filmmaker. I'm quite disgusting. <laughs> and um, joining us tonight, amongst other
2: things, he is the host of Horror Happens Radio, Mr. J.K. Jay, Hello. Hey, how you guys doing? Happy uh, post-holidays.
0: Oh shit, yeah, Happy New Year, sir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, like a, yeah. a long time no speak.
2: Yeah, Andy. I mean, it's it's been quite a few years, and uh, it's an honor now to uh, be on the other side of the mic, especially with how talented and disgusting a filmmaker you are. Oh, thank you very <laughs> much. Oh, stop it. <laughs> equal parts talented and revolting. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> um, Jay, hell of a pick for tonight.
2: Well, thank you very much. Sushi Girl is a quite a close film to my heart, one I've loved and I discovered by accident. So it's, it's going to be fun to talk about it. Okay, tell us a bit about how you did discover it then. Well, as you had brought up before about Horror Happens Radio, which I've done in long form for uh, every week for four to five hours for almost six and a half years. Wow. Um, in 2013, I came across... Uh, the film Sushi Girl. And, you know, I've been a fan of Tony Todd. Uh, I'm not a a sickle fan toady of uh, Candyman like everyone else, Um, but I enjoy the film. And to see something else of him that's different was incredible. So I reached out to Kern Saxton, the director and Andy McKenzie and Tony Todd. And um, in different capacities, I spoke with them over the years about the film. Uh, Also, Noah Hathaway as well, but not not on the air. And it's uh, been a A film that's grown on me and one that's kind of underrated and uh, lost in the shuffle of things.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that that's happened because the cast on this is insane.
2: It's absolutely crazy. And as we'll get into it more, but, you know, it breaks the normal casting system on how it came together as well. Noah Hathaway was Facebook. He was casted through Facebook. David, uh, uh, what's David's last name? Uh, Uh, Reynolds. David Reynolds was another one that was through Facebook. Tony Todd came on as an executive producer, and uh, he took over the role of Duke. So it's some very interesting and very uh, different casting than the people we've come to know.
0: Yeah, I remember um, back when I was running the website and when I was writing for magazines and stuff, uh, coming across this film while it was still kind of in the preliminary promotion stuff before it coming out. Right. I don't remember if I got sent the DVD, like as like as a kind of screener, or if I was if I bought it. But I had next to no recollection until we actually watched it again here. Of I remembered the ending, but I couldn't remember the kind of motions of how it gets there. Um, <laughs> so up until watching it again today, I kind of felt like I was going in blind to it, and I I was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised by some of it.
2: Yeah, it it's definitely a film that started from almost next to nothing. It was almost shot. On weekends in like the director and producer's apartment and it turned into nearly a million dollar budget that was what we see but it's funny because you look at the set for sushi girl and you look at the props and if they spent 300 bucks on the suits for Tony Todd and Mark Hamill that was a lot if they. It, you know, the, it, if you listen to the commentary and read stuff, there was rat shit all over the place that they had to clean up in that <laughs> in that basement they used of a location. So but I will say this, guys, I'm very happy I was able to give you one that you didn't especially Andy, you watch 10 plus hours of Saw films to get to it so <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, someone's done their homework yeah uh, oh, oh God. always
2: do hey Mitch I've got the poster behind me signed by Tobin and, and Costas Out of with way. the uh, carousel <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> love Saw 6 it's one of my favorites thank you oh, thank you for See? God's sake. most welcome <laughs>
1: <laughs> Um, right Jay before we get into this uh, if you've been listening to old episodes which you obviously have been then you'll know what's coming next Um, I'm ready. uh, I have a feeling you might be. Um, Andy's going to put 30 seconds on the clock. I'm going to count you in. And your best 30 seconds synopsis of Sushi Girl.
2: Uh, Okay, you good to go? I'm ready. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Sushi Girl focuses on a convict named Fish, who is released after a six-year stint in prison for a failed heist, taking the blame for the blown robbery and looking forward, you, you could say, to his freedom. His former boss, Duke, played by Tony Todd, ...surprises him and his former crew with a sushi celebration in an isolated Japanese restaurant. At the center of the celebration is a mysterious sushi girl that lays prone in the middle of the ceremonial table. As the night unfolds, a tense game begins. What happened Time. What happened? Ah, oh, I was so time. close. I was so one off. Oh, that, was <laughs> that wasn't too bad. That, that wasn't, wasn't too bad. bad. That felt like ages. Yeah, I was Actually, say, it felt like quite.
0: A, it felt like quite a long time. Sometimes those just fly by, but that felt like quite. That felt like you get quite a I long was, in there. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna it say, was close. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, you didn't make it all the way over the finish line, but I think for scene
1: setting, I think you uh, you pretty much got there. I think you hit on all the key stuff.
2: Well, I hope so, and we'll get we'll, we'll fill in all those holes shortly. I'm sure. Absolutely,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's dive straight into this, and um, it opens up with um a woman who we will come to learn is uh the titular Susie girl. oh sure, yeah. Uh, Courtney yes. Palm. Yeah, from Zombievers. From uh, yeah, l- I yeah, would laterally, of course go on to be um <laughs> and Zombievers. Yeah, doing makeup in a dressing room. She's approached by Duke played Mm -hmm. by Tony Todd, who kind of immediately gives off a kind of very sleazy vibe.
2: True. Um, Very true.
1: (laughs) And uh, he kind of just tells her to hurry up. So uh, she wanders through to this kind of very minimally minimally decorated basement, uh, strips naked, lies on the table,
0: and we are off. Diamonds are forever. The soundtrack to this couldn't have been cheap. Yeah,
2: Shirley Basie. Yeah. Yeah,
0: That could not have been cheap.
2: You know what's funny about that, guys? The music supervisor, um, uh, his first name is Sean. Uh, The last name's escaping me, but he was able through a lot of connections to get the the rights for Isaac Hayes and for yeah. Shirley Basie and a lot of the, the core music that wasn't done by uh, the composer Fritz, and uh, very cool.
0: Yeah, very cool. And and I think um, obviously what kind of Ken Saxon's going for here is a kind of Tarantinoy vibe, right. and that's kind of evident from the I guess the opening credits, which are in the the bad motherfucker wallet font <laughs> from Pulp Fiction. And yeah. I think having these big big songs like having Isaac Hayes and Shirley Bassey on the soundtrack is really like really helps to kind of sell that right out the gate.
2: Yeah, it does, and it aids in it aids in the story that is very bare bones if you look at it, because it's really a, situ- a situational film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no backstory really to it. It's just about the, the result of a blown job, and to have this music kind of not only sets the mood and tells a lot about the story uh, that bookends, but also you go ahead and you look at the way that it just ups the level of what oh, yeah. this film really is.
0: Yeah, it totally, totally elevates it, because, I mean... It would have been dead easy to get someone doing a really dodgy lounge cover of Diamonds <laughs> Are Forever or another version right. of Walk On By for the end credits, but to actually have the big names on there is
2: right away, it, it, it's impressive. Very much so. And a welcome surprise. It, it puts you in that mood of danger. Oh, yeah. yeah
0: definitely <laughs> i think a bond theme will generally
1: do that <laughs> very true. in our kind of opening montage here uh you have um amongst other things you see someone coming out coming out of prison uh-huh. we will come to learn that that's fish mm-hmm. uh, right. who's kind of the focus of the piece and also i think also crucially uh sushi girl
0: is being covered in sushi yeah yeah by none other than sonny chima <laughs> amen yeah absolutely and uh, i actually think this is quite a stylish opening kind of montage
2: it's very stylish opening montage And you look at it because it's very ceremonial. And as you learn later about Tony Todd, who plays Duke, you know that he is very much in the the Yakuza way of life. Whether or not that's legitimate or not, you'll have to find out. But it definitely fits what's going on. But Sonny Chiba coming out for this role, I mean, someone reached out and and they got their uh, their death wish to be able to bring in a legend like that who just adds another level to it.
0: Yeah, and let's talk a bit about the casting here. I think talking about Sonny Chiba is a good kind of road into that. Mm-hmm. The cast, yeah. as we mentioned, is amazing. Granted, some of the guys are obviously they and doing like a minimal kind of maybe a day's work, but to still have names like you've got Danny Trejo in there and Jeff Fahey and uh, Michael Bean pops up in there as well, plus all right. the kind of guys that we mentioned, it's a pretty impressive
2: cast. Yeah, it is. And, and for me, I love Mark Hamill's Joker esque turn with crow because originally that character was supposed to be bald and he's supposed to look nothing like mark hamill does with uh with the aspect of crow yeah. that whole style comes from groucho marks it, it comes from the aspect of of um truman capote and a whole slew of others that really built that style even his daughter the way they twirls his hair and pops his gum is is you know very reminiscent of a teenage girl okay yeah yeah yeah
1: it's funny you should say the Truman Capote thing because we both said when we were watching it um that like just kind of aesthetically there was a Philip Seymour Hoffman thing
2: yes
0: that was actually my wife that picked up on that. That yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a date movie guys well uh, she didn't last long um she's not <laughs> once the torture stuff kicked off she was like fuck guys I'm out of here. <laughs> um... So after Fish
1: gets into the car, you can kind of, when he's on his way there, you can tell he's kind of nervous. You know, he's kind of saying, it's like, oh, I kept my mouth shut. What does he want from me? The character, the way the character is introduced after that, when he gets to the basement where most of this is going to unfold. um, It deals very deliberately in kind of ambiguity and kind of foreshadowing in a way that's really abstract.
2: Yes, very much so. And when you look at something like this, to have that kind of mystery, I think plays very well into it. Because a lot of times... When you have that mystery uh, in in something that's situational like this, it, it kind of you lose your connection to it, you lose your attention. But for them, building those characters and giving that that sort of mystery makes a difference, at least in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I th- I think in terms of in terms of kind of foreshadowing and stuff, but dealing kind of like painting with kind of broader strokes uh, is good. I think it helps. Absolutely. So let's talk a bit about the characters as we meet them. Yeah, uh, because fish we could because we see fish heading there. But the first ones we meet, obviously, we've got uh, Duke Tony Todd. Yeah, and Crow Mark Hamill.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I've got some problems. I know, this might be at odds with you, Jay, but I've got some problems with Mark Hamill's performance in this. I think.
2: Go it's, ahead. I think it's just too much. Well, <laughs> it, it, well, when you look at it, though, I mean, this is a performance that accents everyone else around the table. I mean, I can understand it being very over the top, but. To get Mark Hamill in on this, I have a feeling there was a lot of freedom given to him to do oh, what aye. he wanted Absolutely. to do. Absolutely, yeah.
0: <laughs> I think that just to have the name attached, I would probably do. I'd, I'd probably let him up even more stuff. I think as well. I mean, I th-
1: I think that in isolation, I think that what like, his performance, considering obviously what you know about Mark Hamill and what you're used to with Mark Hamill, I mm-hmm. think it does seem weird. But I think that
0: I wouldn't say that at all. I mean, <laughs> he's the Joker well I guess yeah
1: but, you know yeah. Um, I think that uh with what you see here I think that in a film where a lot of people are dialing it up to 11 I would say that it, <laughs> it, it coexists better with that than it would in other films you know
2: yeah very much well you, you know you look at the different sides you go around the table and all these characters have such different ways about them and for me you know, I look at some of the performances, and I have less of a problem with Mark Hamill, and more of a problem with James James the Balls' pro uh, <laughs> uh, performance. Um, it's it, oh, painful at times at least for me uh
1: yeah um we, c- we can get to that but yeah i
0: completely agree that was the yeah. one i found the hardest work yeah we both came down on that line i think where we were like
2: jesus he's bad in this <laughs> he's just being james Devall, and it seems you know like like you say bruce will this is a bruce wills being bruce wills this is a nick cage being nick cage yeah. <laughs> this is a james the ball being a james Devall.
1: speaking of a kind of a diff like a a different flavor of insanity the next character that you meet is max
0: <laughs>
1: um it's played by andy mckenzie who i mean you can tell there's a lot of tension here but him and crow seem to hate each other
0: what gives you that
2: impression much <laughs> um well <laughs> you, you know if you it, when you look at the way max is i mean he's almost the polar opposite of what you know what we deal with crow and what we deal with duke and you know it, it's when you look at someone like andy mckenzie you talk to him and he's one of the nicest people you're going to meet he's a fitness freak mm-hmm. he's very down to earth he he actually i think he manages his daughter's uh, career as an actress and right. then you see him in something like this where he's frothing at the mouth through majority of the movie it's 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 kind of intense and crazy it's definitely that yeah and
0: then like we say we come on to james Deval's character francis yeah he he's not great from the start but he's kind of the He's kind of the conscience of the group, in a way. Yes, He doesn't really agree with uh, particularly their methods in trying to extract this information.
1: Yeah, I think that James Duvall's reactions to what's going on around him in this are designed to kind of mirror the reaction that the film is trying to get from you.
2: I would agree with that. And the fact that there is other variables thrown in that we find out throughout the film, you know, makes it kind of an awkward situation. And when you look at it, you know, as, as out there as the performance is, that I think we all agree with, It's also in a situation we've never been in. So you don't know what you would do. And maybe someone who is attempting to change his life, maybe this is what he would go through. It'd be interesting to pick the uh, director's mind on that.
0: Yeah. yeah, and that's our kind of five
1: main guys. Yeah, because right. Fish, Fish arrives kind of like immediately after the rest yeah. of the day. He arrives last, and
0: yeah, you've kind of got your main players in place. Yeah, and all the action, of course, takes place around the center focal
2: point, which is Sushi Girl herself. Yeah, Sushi Girl is, she's fascinating. Uh, Courtney Palm, from what I read, she was one of a couple hundred. That was auditioned, and we're talking like playmates and, and you know, penthouse pets and mm-hmm. women of different, uh, different ilks. And someone who looks like the girl next door got the role. And, uh, for what she does, I, I think she carries it pretty decently.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, she's not got a stitch of clothing on for the whole film, which is, <laughs> which is, which is bold in the
1: first place. But yeah, I know what you mean though. I think that, like, it's, it I can understand people thinking maybe says, like, sounds silly that you're praising up a performance when someone's just lying perfectly still, but I think she, I think she is good here, in the same way that I thought um that about the central performance in the autopsy of Jane Doe. Oh, yeah. Great comparison.
0: But she does she does do some nice stuff when afforded the opportunity. Just the little flinches and the little moments. Obviously, she's privy to all this madness going on around her, and she just has to lie there and kind of...
1: Not react, be as stoic as she can be. Yeah,
0: put up with it, less, uh, less
2: some sashimi uh, rolls off her onto the tabletop. Um, <laughs> 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 well, I, I will say this, and... I think out of all the characters, her backstory is more developed without saying a word uh, when it comes to it because the reaction with Tony Todd at the beginning, uh, the cigarette or cigar burn in Mm -hmm. her shoulder that's there, I mean, there's a lot told even without a word being said, and uh, we find out that there's reasons later on for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I just want to quickly talk about um, the female body as a sushi delivery tool. I'm a fan of the female form. I'm a fan of sushi. But Me too. And I've wow. seen I've seen the these displays before on, on TV and stuff like that. I've never been near one of these okay. female sushi displays. But to me that just seems like a that, that seems like <laughs> a nightmare to me is to eat sushi that sat on a person's body all night. Hygiene's
2: a problem for you? Come on.
0: I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say hygiene's a problem for me, because I've done some disgusting stuff in my time. Yes, <laughs> <I guess> you <laughs> but, have. <laughs> but, uh, but what I would say is that, I don't know, just, I, I find the idea of eating slightly body-warmed
2: sushi off someone to be quite unappealing. It's, I think it adds an element of style to it. And the simple fact that, you know, you have something so... Beautiful and something that looks so pure—a um, canvas almost—with with this beautiful layout in such a dingy, dirty place. I think I think kind of a uh, no matter how you feel personally or how your stomach feels, it it makes a difference with it. And mm. why I agree that it's not the best palette for it. It definitely adds an <laughs> element uh, that would been it would have changed the way the story was.
0: Oh no, no! I think it's important to the story, and I know why the I know why it's in there. I'm just talking for my personal preferences.
2: well you and I need to go
0: out more often Jano's all the best sushi lady (laughs) bars
1: I I like the idea though of like amidst all the kind of torture and stuff that goes on in this film the idea that the thing that bothers you most is just sitting there being like that's definitely not up to code
0: (laughs) (laughs) but what I will say is the rat shit basement I think it's the set design and it's good i like the look of it i think it's a really yeah uh, yeah i think it's yeah. really cool i think yeah. I, I, yeah
1: I think it's really smart i like uh, the, the whole i i'm generally a sucker for kind of chamber pieces well mm-hmm. i lie, i know that yeah um but yeah like I, I think that visually i think it's really it's really cool
2: yeah and there's a lot of very memorable shots with that japanese flag um in the background oh, yeah. and the way they set it up and that actually is a chinese restaurant that was turned into a japanese restaurant oh no way yeah, that—that's. I found that kind of eye. If you look at it, some of the production design you can actually see that in the bar, and you can see—you uh, can see that in the way that certain things are arranged inside of it. So it's a very interesting backdrop. But it's funny because a lot of this took place on the Universal Studio lot, from what I understand. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So it was very cool. But in the sense, though, it doesn't. What Kern does, what the production designer does. Uh, they go ahead and they don't make it where it's like overly in your face. It it feels like it would for a gang kind of film and to have at the centerpiece. And it's very good framing. Um, Andy, I, I, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but it's very good framing uh, when it comes to cinematography to have, the most beautiful thing in the room right in the center and everything around it to be so dingy it almost is like having a spotlight on it
0: i love that i mean uh, i think um for her to be kind of this almost the eye of this hurricane this right relaxed eye of this hurricane that's going around uh, of swearing and casual homophobia and just <laughs> violence um, and she's just lying there almost serene but her mind must be going a mile a minute <laughs> Uh, <laughs> True.
1: So the guys sit down to eat, and, at this point, and you get the first of conservatively 47 caricaturish James Duvall reactions when he finds um, <laughs> <laughs> when he finds the uh, the, de- the devil mask on um right. on his chair and kind of freaks out. He obviously thinks that that's in very poor taste, and we find out why eventually yeah yeah mm-hmm. and uh, yeah but, but it's pretty much at this point that we've now straight into this this is obviously we hear duke says that this is presented basically as being a celebration of the fact that fish is just out of prison sure and then we go straight into a flashback
0: yeah but what you've missed something quite important here, oh go Mitch. on just, go on i don't want to move on with it touching on the fugu oh for ah, christ's sake yeah <laughs> so that The plan with this sushi meal is that you work your way from the edges inward, and it gets more decadent as you go in towards the more the closer you get to the erogenous zones, presumably. Right. Like I know what a woman's erogenous zones are. Uh, I just (laughs) I just hope for the best. But um, certainly (laughs) on our vaginal area, Uh there is fugu pufferfish, blowfish, um, which, as we know from old Simpsons episodes, can kill you. Yes.
2: We connect the Simpsons to Sushi Girl. I love that. Go ahead. that was,
1: honestly, when they said Fugu, it was the first thing I remembered. <laughs> the episode, wow, okay. The, the episode where Homer if it eats it and he thinks he's going to die. Yeah. Because yeah, like, they say if it's sliced wrong, Akoya, okay, it's like, I know that. I know that from the Simpsons.
2: <laughs> well, and, and that, you know, there's an element of danger with that. But one of the things, guys, you know, and something even before that, um, and Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and Sandy and Mitch, you know, when they're sitting at the bar, getting you know organized and, and chatting after all this time i was i was a little turned off by how fast the violence escalated i expected a little bit more of a a subtle build and a little bit more of a sarcasm in conversation mm-hmm. instead of having max slamming uh, crow's head into there from a joke i mean they could have built it another way and that was one of the things i was a little disappointed with uh yeah. when it came to it so early
0: yeah i would agree um i, th- I feel like um that's too early a trigger point for their relationship because after that there is so much needling that goes on after the fact yeah and it's it's never built up to that that same level so quickly although arguably i would say the needling intensifies
1: i don't know if it's necessarily inconsistent with the max character as he's presented because he flies off the handle all the time (laughs) but i would i would agree that in terms of like kind of building the tension and kind of Stoking the fires a little bit between those two characters before it really kind of kicks off. I would say that it's a little bit premature to have that happen when it does.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at what they do, and don't get me wrong, it's quick, it's brutal, and it's impulsive. And God bless uh, Mark Hamill the way he takes it because the way they shoot this film throughout is really smart. They shoot from behind, they make sure that it looks as realistic as possible. It almost feels like kind of a pro wrestling throughout
0: right yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Yeah. especially the moment where uh, max flies across the room and kind of that's right he looks
2: like roman reigns man when he, when he, when
0: he, when he lands on fish and just rains blows down upon him
2: <laughs> 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 superman <laughs>
1: Um, uh, yeah, the flashback that we get after this is really brief. It's enough to allude to the fact that it's pr- the the backstory that they have is probably a robbery, but you don't really get right. any more than that in flashback form at that point, but what we do get is the real kind of the kind of meat of this.
0: Yeah, and we learn a little bit more about their relationships and, crucially, Fish's relationship to them in so much as right. it seems very much to me like this was an existing team of guys and they have drafted in the new guy in Fish and they still that kind of doubt and mistrust about him. Right. That's certainly yes. kinda of the way it's presented. Yeah,
2: being very to much agree. so.
1: Yeah. And um and yeah, we kind of pieced together that this was a diamond heist that went wrong for which Fish was presumably arrested and that was why he was in prison.
0: Yeah, operable. yeah, believe Yeah, and he's certainly presented as well as that he's been a good enough guy to not rat anybody out and taking the rap for it.
2: Yeah. And and that's something that's almost from the first frame that you see him uh, when he comes on with dialogue with Dave Reynolds, who, who again plays one of the heavies um, in the film, but it, you know he's from moment he's just you know giving his maya copa that he had nothing to do with it, and you know it's it, it makes it it's a really easy and maybe this goes to the fact that it was supposed to be a very bare bones indie project, even less than what it was uh, what it was made for, mm-hmm. but this could have been just an easy plot device saying listen. He's the the newest, so he's the fall guy no matter what. Um, If you pinned it on Max, if you pinned it on Crow, if you pinned it on Francis – I don't think it would have had the effectiveness. It was a little bit of an easy way to move the story along instead of challenging and getting deeper into the characters with the time and budget they had.
0: Yeah. We also get an inkling here that somebody somewhere is listening to all these events as they unfold. Right. Just as we kind of come out of the flashback, we see a tape recorder running. Real
2: to real, man. That's freaking
0: awesome. They were able to get one. (laughs) (laughs) I feel old like knowing that. But um, what
1: we do know is the diamonds that were the subject of this heist—they're lost. And right. Fish uh, seems to have like somehow exonerated the others with his arrest, but they want their cut from these diamonds. They right.
0: believe he knows where they are, and he protests his innocence constantly. <laughs> um, oh, and uh, yeah, and he, I think it's quite clear almost immediately that
2: he's got no fucking idea where these diamonds are. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he, you know, it's it's interesting how when they when he's saying it and Duke is not buying it whatsoever you know it pushes it a little bit and it feels like it, at times it's a little bit forced on on getting to the second act and the 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 what they're going to do the fish when they go through i mean you know when you're gone for so many years behind prison walls, I think it's the last thing you want to do when it comes to something like this. So I think it's pushed a little bit. Maybe it's just me, though.
0: And it's worth mentioning that when we come out of the flashback, um, Fish is already tied to a chair and bleeding immediately.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
1: I I, I quite like the fact that they were just, like, indiscriminately roughing him up while we were watching that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It really was a palette for for them just to be psychotic, but but it works because of, of the situation they're in.
1: One thing that I wanna hit on from the uh flashback is uh yeah. when, when you see the Duke, Tony Todd's character kinda of prepping them uh to go in, he gives them the masks that they're gonna be wearing and they are exceptionally fancy robbery masks. Yes.
2: Yeah. No um uh, no masks, uh NOH, yeah. those ceremonial uh, Japanese ones. They're very cool.
1: Yeah, I kinda of feel like um, I kinda of feel like he needs the diamond heist to recoup the money that he spent on the masks for the heist. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you, you might be right you might be right and on his suit yeah he's a showman See, he's very much a showman and you know it's funny because those masks are like uh, one of the the positive points of that flashback scene but i i gotta tell you something i the character of nelson i love his monologue because it's something that's so tarantino it has something to do with it yet it doesn't have and it's entertaining he finds a balance with it very well with that monologue about clearing his bowels
1: oh yeah yeah um, yeah the, the, the vinnie parker story
2: <laughs> oh it's so good it's yeah. so good and to have and to have fish like work <laughs> off of him by asking him because he's green with the uh with the group that he's with i mean I, I think it's good very good back and forth some of the best throughout the movie
1: he's like visibly antsy from the off that character isn't he? nelson
2: i i don't know who has more uh more of those uh um looks more of those facial cues, him or uh James the Ball's character. I mean like, I, like I, a three men.
1: <laughs> I, I mean like obviously like uh Nelson's got way less screen time but yeah pound for pound it might be Nelson.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it might be Nelson. What well, he plays it really well. I mean he's you know uh David I Das Malkin Das Malkin yes Das Malkin yeah, yeah. I mean he's done he's done a lot of, he a done lot of Dark work Knight? yeah he was the he was one of the Joker's henchmen yeah. Yeah. I mean he's done stuff he plays really weird and creepy characters so you know him having issues with his bowels would not be a surprise
1: <laughs> i thought when, when when you when i saw him on screen i felt like i knew him from everything and also
2: nothing <laughs> that's exactly right he's a chameleon man he's yeah. a chameleon with, with 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 a bowel problem
0: <laughs> <laughs> he actually plays the urgency of desperately needing this shit really well That kind <laughs> of hop, hopping from foot to foot thing
2: oh <laughs> um, he
0: <laughs> go ahead um, we've all
1: been there oh yeah and yeah as you said andy we jump back to the present day at that point and uh yeah while we were being caught up on a kind of uh previously on sushi girl flashback they've been <laughs> roughing him up and um crow is tying fish to a chair at this point point. and at this point i must admit i did have a little bit of because i actually wrote down uh, when we went because this is kind of the trigger point for the second act i think for me and right i had actually had written down against my better judgment i'm very intrigued <laughs> ah,
2: ah, ah. it's like a car accident no pun intended with this film that you can't pull your eyes away from
1: yeah i was uh,
0: uh, very very curious to see where this goes uh, I, yeah I, I and had there's a little different
2: po- levels to it too
0: but yeah it, it certainly it escalates into one of the a moment that I find exceptionally difficult to watch every single time, but I'm um, kicking it off with Tony Todd here, who delivers one of the more insane monologues I've ever heard. Yes, and uh, a very kind of reminiscent of the gold watch from Pulp Fiction, but yeah, but more abusey, yeah, definitely. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's got this uh, he's got this timer that he keeps playing with that he says his dad found in a prisoner of war camp in Hiroshima,
2: yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> Yeah, and but that monologue is based on uh based on a real story. I want to say that one of the producers uh was told by his dad, so it's it's got I think why it's so authentic beyond the fact of what Tony Todd brings to it is the interaction between him and Fish because they shot that I think with one camera. It would've been amazing if they did it with two cameras, mm-hmm. but uh you know, that that emotion was so strong that Noah Hathaway had to go and uh cry after they were done. Really?
0: I really like when, yeah. when Tony Todd does these. It does this thing where he, he, when he's delivering, you can see his eyes getting redder and redder and redder, and then sometimes yes. he just gets this one lone tear. Um, yeah, and he does it again. in this, I've seen him doing a couple of things, and I think um, in isolation, I think while I don't necessarily enjoy the monologue, I think Tony Todd delivers it really well here. I think in isolation, this is his best moment for me.
2: Yeah, I I have to agree with you, and I, uh, you know, there there's some people, some performers like Sean Connery, for example, that they say if he reads a phone book it sounds sexy and amazing. Tony Todd reads anything. He could read an obituary and people would be intrigued by it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's there's something there's something about his delivery that draws you to your regardless of what
2: the material is, I think. Right, exactly. But I mean to have it in that room and one of the things I thought I I thought was really good and really smart was to have everybody in the background uh behind tony todd instead of it having it just those two with that kind of intimacy because it shows that they really are kind of a family a very dysfunctional family that is going through the motions with this yeah yeah
1: um at this point when when this was unfolding i was looking at this and wondering if i thought that there was room in this one 90 minute film for all of these huge performances and i think that as it escalates i think that Tony Todd is probably, in fact, definitely for me the guy who maintains the tightest grip on the material.
2: Yeah, I would, I would say so. He definitely has his all in it, and don't get me wrong, he's an executive producer on it, so his ass is on the line as well on a different level. Uh, but for him, he seems to bring it every single time for what for what's offered to him in the way of roles. He he takes very much an importance to it. But I I don't know if I technically I don't know if I would agree with you because I got to tell you. When when the character of Fish is getting tortured and we'll talk more about it, the different levels of torture that goes through and some of the inspirations, I'm sure, you know, I his screaming. I wonder if he had a voice after he was done and how many takes they had to do, because, I mean, they sell he sells it really well, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not a filmmaker, but from what I've seen people have talked to I mean I I, I gotta tell you I, he convinces me a lot with the torture
1: yeah that's true and I think that the screaming like you say but also the kind of like the kind of visibly panicked stuff mm-hmm. as it
2: escalates oh yeah kind of thing, the twitching really of his jaw and stuff like that mm-hmm.
0: I had no problem whatsoever with what Noah Hathaway does in this I think he sells it absolutely yeah. as it should be sold I wouldn't have very many notes for him I don't think
2: you know what's you know what's crazy about it and for those who don't know and if you look at my IMD, imdb He's a tray you from the never ending story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is crazy. He hasn't acted I mean, up until that point, I mean, he didn't act for fifteen years, somewhere around there. Yeah. And the comeback, I mean, that's gotta be a held an experience getting uh, thrown right back into the center of the fire. It's yeah. a, it's it's, it's, uh-huh. it's a tall order for a comeback film. Very much so. And it's something that, you know, when you go through torture scenes like that, if you don't emote correctly, if you don't if you don't work off the other person, I mean You know, it just doesn't work. And someone is over the top, which I know some of us like, some of us don't. Um, Or as brutal as what Max is or over-the-top as Crow is if you're not able to be adaptable like that I mean, it's you know, you got to build that backstory Which I think is lacking when it comes to this film But is brought through as much as it can with a character like fish and what Noah does
0: Yeah, You have to wonder what it was about as the kind of previous things that he'd done that thought that made them think that He was the right guy for this torture scene.
2: I think it was lack of budget. I think it just all worked
0: (laughs) out (laughs) Well, he does a fine job. I think oh, I think so too and
1: the first of the kind of torture sequences, the real proper torture sequences in this, comes up next. And it is Max that steps up first.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, it is. He punch, he, boy, he loves to punch. He, he does love to punch, yeah. <laughs> I think that
1: uh, once I kind of understood the function of the timer in the torture sequences, I thought that it worked really well was kind of building to something that you knew was going to be really significant. Yeah. Um, when it yeah. kind of sets the clock and he has the three minutes to kind of... Get the information from yeah. him. So you were kind of always waiting for the kind of just waiting for the kind of chime and then you knew something was going to go down. I think that considering how little this actually shows, I think that the first one is really, really heavy going.
2: Very much so. And, and, uh, you know, to go to your timer point, I think Fritz Meyer's score really accents the aspect of building that tension and that one singular ding... It's like you just know something bad's going to happen. And each time, each level just seems to get worse when you have that pinpointed sound. Because the sound design in this film, I think, is one of the true highlights in what they're able to do. And we'll talk about the sock in just a couple minutes. But, I mean, that <laughs> sock sequence oh. is just... the the
0: yeah. And then... Mm. That's a bit I've, that I struggle the most with. That's... Uh that's horrible <laughs> yeah because i mean like uh, uh, it's I mean, like, that's really it's, horrible yeah i mean like in
1: a film that's full of like really unpleasant shit that was the one where i was like oh my god
2: <laughs> it's you know it's it's for me i love how it goes back and forth but i love that they give you the payoff at the end of what the sock looks like just like what the face looks like yes. i think that was for me it worked really well yeah,
1: I mean, I, um, so I mean, obviously, what happens here first is that Max kind of does he? He seems to like crack a rib with he his reaches, bare hands.
0: It reaches under ah. his ribcage, cage, like he puts ah. his, like, puts his fingers under under the fish's rib. rib cage, <laughs> no. and yeah. then just presumably either. Pushes in really hard or pulls out outward, really yeah. hard. Either um, way,
1: it's, it's again, they sounded it, at the living daylight out of it as well. <laughs> and yeah, it is, it's just so horrible. I, I cracked around about this time last year, I cracked a rib, and um, there was an instance where I rolled over in bed and it cracked again.
2: Oh, cool. Oh, oh
1: yeah, it was always oh, fucking horrible. And that it, was just and that was just me rolling on my side, having someone do it by force. I mean, it genuinely, like, I had to, I recoiled a bit from the screen when that happened.
2: Well, and and I think what Andy does is, is Max sticking the hand underneath there and then building it with that three minutes, it, it makes all the difference. Cause if he had done it quick, it would have hurt, but to have it sit there and the face, and that's another thing we we talk about Francis's face and Nelson's face. Look at Max's face. I mean, he just, he, he needs a Prozac, man. <laughs> He's loving <God>. this. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I also broke my ribs
0: uh, doing a forward roll out of a minibus on my stag do. Oh, wow. You, okay. I'm sure I've told you that story before, yeah. my,
1: my, my, Mine was just a fall in the eyes. I feel like I've been story topped. No, um, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, turns out I can't do a forward roll. <laughs> uh, Crow's up next, and uh, he goes for another similarly direct approach. Ha- hammers a chopstick into his leg. <laughs> oh
2: acupuncture it's all acupuncture baby
1: yeah um i think that it's one of one of the better i i am kind of i'm on the fence a little bit about the work that mark hamill does in this film but i think that in the run-up to that i think that that's one of his stronger moments i think that when he's actually doing the kind of the preamble to the acupuncture if you like I think that that's a moment I think where I kind of like I really felt like he was an habit in the character. I enjoyed that.
0: I love when he slips out of his kind of smart shoes and into the yes. old, his old tattered converse.
2: His yes. work
1: shoes, his work shoes, yeah. yeah, his
0: work shoes.
2: And and I will I will say this, that was from talking with Kern Saxton, that was a point of contention with the producers on whether or not they were gonna let the converse in. And I think it adds something that's completely tangible to the scene, something that doesn't look like it fits. But it fits really well for the situation it's in.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good choice. I really like it. Yeah, and it's never explored really, like, uh, apart from the fact I think when uh, when Mark Hamill when Crow first sees the shoes, he says something to Duke along the lines of "you sentimental old bastard" or something. Right. Like that. <laughs> um, so presumably, there's a long and storied history to these shoes that meant that Duke had to hang on to them, uh, that they were somehow left in Duke's possession. Um, he's
2: such a sweet guy.
0: <laughs> that was that was precisely my, my impression as well. Yeah, yeah. That, this bit warmed my heart until he hammered a chopstick into a man's leg.
2: <laughs> and and when you know you're right about him selling it when when it comes to the chopstick, because unlike the rest of the tortures, how fish reacts to him after he's hammered a chopstick into his leg is priceless. Because you know it's it's probably the final time I would say. And I think I'm glad it was only this. It was so early in the second act that he really put up some sort of defensive front and was really still prodding him, even though he was in a no position to do any of that. I like how they they structured Fish as the victim of this throughout the entire narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. It's run right about this point I would say as well that Fish kind of you get the impression that Fish knows there's no way he's walking away from this, so he treats right. every single new attack on him as an opportunity to kind of attack back from a position where he, he can't physically attack, he, he gets involved in some pretty heavy verbal sparring. God, well, I mean,
2: I he spits in Max's face as well. Point, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, but that but even the spit in the face, though, I mean, it, it's one thing, that's disrespectful and straight up, but the to, to prod the character of Crow, which throughout the film, one of the running jokes with, with the character Crow is whether he's gay or not. And this is something that you're not sure exactly by some of the dialogue, by some of the reactions, because you know there's something going on with Max throughout that that's being slowly risen to the surface. So it's a a very interesting dynamic that they they don't fully exploit, which I'm glad, because that could have taken over the narrative very easily. Yeah, Yeah,
0: well, Max, that's one of the key kind of components in Max's golden of crow is that he quite often uh, is firing homophobic slurs his way. and Right. And yeah, I would say Mark Hamill's playing it kind of effete, almost a stereotypical gay performance. Yeah. And at other points, that's completely missing. And
2: I don't know if it would have been better to go one way or the other. Well, I, I think having it ambiguous like that, where he sits back and at one point he's talking about sampling the sushi girl, and then at yeah. another point he's just very flamboyant, You're right. I'd have to agree with you that one way would have been the other. But again, I think this was the power of what the cast wants because it's Mark Hamill, because it's Tony Todd, because it is it is who it is. And I think to a fault, even though I love the character Crow, I think to a fault that is a big issue with it. Yeah, no, I agree. We delve straight back
1: into um, the another flashback, the robbery itself this time, and right. uh, some uh, uh, and uh, the almost inevitable appearance of a machete wielding Danny Trejo at this point.
2: A Jewish machete wielding <laughs> Danny Trejo. What do you mean Jewish? Look on the look on the machete. Look on the machete next time. It is Jewish. Wow. It's Jew, because they didn't have the they. I'm gonna guess they didn't have the rights to be able to do what they did but yeah it's a jewish symbol on the machete
0: he does also say that's not kosher as he approaches the that's land, doesn't
2: right
0: he? <laughs> yes i did not pick up on that at all that's hilarious that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a good spot it's a good spot thank
2: you Sp- well, Sp- spoken like an expert dynamic.
0: And i've just checked well, on imdb as well and his character's name is shlomo <laughs>
2: there you go <laughs> i didn't know what his character name was so there you go there you go oh okay (laughs) Uh,
1: fucking hell Um, oh good he's he's uh he is gone as quick as he arrives
2: (laughs) well i'm gonna guess that he was the last minute to the to the entire cast absolutely because when you when you go that quick in and out i mean that's more name recognition than anything else i would think
0: yeah, and the same could be said for Michael
2: Bean, right? And Jeff Fahey also. Yeah,
0: yeah, Jeff Fahey—he gets a little bit more to do, I suppose, than either Trejo or Bean do. But um, I know Michael Bean did—or IMDb trivia told me that uh, Michael Bean did his role for free in a day.
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm guessing. If you- He's a really good guy. If I, I had a chance to meet him at Comic-Con, he's a really, really nice guy very down to earth. So uh, it makes sense.
1: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, th- I think all three of them are kind of dispatched with a speed that's only afforded to characters played by actors who are hired for a day.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, but,
1: but it's, it's a good sequence, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And you know what's great about that sequence, especially outside, and this is something that I worried wasn't going to be used they the actors know how to act behind the mask yeah when you sit there with nelson and he's waving and and he turns and then when when uh uh the character crow with the cat mask and he kind of cocks his head i mean It's really, really well done with the moding without saying a word. It builds a lot to it. It almost diffuses the tension, which I'm sure they had very little time to shoot the high scene, but it really adds a different dynamic that really carries that instead of just having straight out action, violence, move on. You add a little humor to it, which I like.
1: Yep. There's a lot going on in, in, in a very, very frenetic and very short scene. Yeah. Um, then uh, straight back to the present there. And at this point, I think it's fair to point out that Sushi Girl is doing an absolutely 10 out of 10 job at poker-facing this. Yeah, given she what's is. Going you almost her.
2: forget. She's there.
1: I actually had that a couple of times now you say it. it's mm-hmm. like, I, I forgot she was there until kind of like she would just appear in like the periphery of a shot yeah. or something and just be like, oh, God, yeah, she's there.
2: Yeah, she is. Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the occasional cutback, to her face and reacting from, you know, a hand slamming on the table or something happening that she can't see, I think is great because obviously Courtney Tom uh, really understands how to emote when she's in her most vulnerable phase.
1: Um, yeah, she, and um, this is the first real time in the film that she's given anything to do really apart yeah. from lie still. It's when That's when you start seeing her to do certain things with her face and like, yeah, I, th- I think she does. I think she does yeah. great.
0: I like the way they ramp up her being a human plate to essentially yeah. bring it in, like, it kind of happens more and more frequently and builds up and builds up and builds up until obviously until the end. But before that, there's already character and feeling and worry and doubt and all this stuff that's kind of crept into her mind. Well, before
2: the, I guess the final, the, the final reveal. She's uh, the way that they, if, if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying, the way they present her um, is definitely something that, you know, I mean, she's uh, the film is called sushi girl. You, we yeah. We all get it. But they could have went a lot of different directions when it came to this, and, and they didn't. And I, I think what she's able to do, what Kern Saxton asks her to do throughout the film, I, I think she pulls off marvellously. And for everyone else reacting the way they do around that table, um, it shows that perhaps an inexperienced cast like they talked about originally, wouldn't have been able to pull yeah. off this kind of performance with that kind of focal point in the uh, in, throughout the film.
0: I think what I was just trying to say more was that I like the way they slowly introduce her as a character rather than okay. a, a meat table.
2: Well, you, you know, again, you, you talked about the autopsy of Jane Doe, mm-hmm. how yeah. Jane Doe is introduced, and it's exactly right. And you wonder if someone like Andre Overdahl uh, saw Sushi Girl, the writers saw Sushi Girl and saw what they were able to do because it's very rare to be able to find a, a performer in a performance that is introduced like that where it's just more than an intangible or a tangible object or a prop in the scene.
1: Yeah, uh, I think the, the, the way that that, the tra- that transitions, I think, is really convincingly done. However, next up, we talked about it a second earlier, but it's uh, bottle in the bag time.
0: But the sock time. Well in the sock <laughs> time <thing's gonna> should <laughs> say, yeah.
2: I, this I is, love this scene.
0: This is horrible. I've never I've never seen this done in a film before. I've never even heard of it being done as a thing. You know, sometimes you hear about things being done to people, you hear these stories. Right. Um this is a first for me and yeah, it's fucking horrible. It's
2: terrifying, man. And it's over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean this is something where the excess is needed for.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 a broken
0: bottle. It's a broken ball.
2: Puts a bottle, a right?
0: yes. bottle in a sock. Break the bottle.
1: Yeah, um, so yes. you have
0: a, a sock full of broken glass. Yes. Um, yeah, and he basically, uh, yeah, Max basically, Passion of the Christ's, um fish. Yeah, it. I think. Yeah, th- my my two
1: main takeaways from this was that it was really long and really right. unflinching.
2: Right, very much unflinching, and I'll tell you, it, you look at it now. And one of the criticisms I have of the character Max is that throughout the majority of the film, he is nothing but reactionary. This is not a reactionary scene. This is a scene where it's almost planned by him to a point that Tony Todd understands that he has some sort of control and he's going to give him that bone so he's satisfied uh, when he releases the bottle to him. So I think this is actually really brilliantly executed across the board and if it had been just another impactful Roman Reigns Superman punch and beat the <laughs> hell out of them like we see throughout, it would have been a, a, a more cookie-cutter character. This kind of bends that framework a little bit. And I, I'll tell you something, Full Metal Jacket, I think it is, when they put the soaps in there and they beat the oh, hell yeah. out of Vincent D'Onofrio, yeah. there's occasional things that are like this, but I you're right, I've never seen anything like this. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's something that's through the Japanese... Uh, heritage because you know you want to take influence from what the basis what the background is of this film and maybe that's what it is that's something i'd have to look up but that's yeah. very interesting no
1: it it's 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 definitely it's it's unique as far as i'm concerned and um yeah i'd quite like to know where the idea came from
0: i'd be quite happy dying by this point uh i
1: think the the aftermath of this looks great just want to look, oh, because it's
2: oh so good
1: because <laughs> it lingers so long on the state of fish's face after um this attack which is absolutely absolutely horrific and yeah um and as you said uh, as you said earlier jay the uh the shot of the kind of blood-soaked uh, sock which oh. is probably my favorite shot of the film
2: i agree it it just lingers there, and you see the imprints of the glass and and the the you know the carrot syrup, the maple syrup dripping off of it. But it looks so convincing. I, I'll bet you that that uh, I'll bet you that Noah Hathaway who plays fish couldn't eat French toast or pancakes for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> His face is like. Chop meat, man. Ah, it's crazy. Oh yeah, it's it's uh, like the
1: actual kind of the aftermath. Like it's so close, it's like it's so close up and it's so lingering. So it's it's absolutely grim. And we come like pretty much straight out of this into um another one. It's crow again. Yeah, good um, old crow in his w- pliers with kind of what yeah what feels like an obligatory to- uh tooth extraction. Yeah, some uh, amateur
2: dentistry. But... Marathon man, baby. Yeah, Marathon exactly. Man feel yeah. to it
1: love it <laughs> exactly um at this point i was kind of and i said this to you andy when we were watching it i was kind of like i think that one thing that i do think that the film gets kind of mostly right is that when i thought we were just going to do two back-to-back torture sequences that were both going to be really unpleasant to watch i was kind of like mm-hmm, is this getting a little bit kind of obviously it's gratuitous but you know what i mean and then i think that just around the time that this is happening as crow's next attack is unfolding we kind of double back a little bit to um francis james duval's james duval's character at the table with Duke, and we kind of get the seed sown of kind of where the third act's going to go and a little bit about what, a, like, a little bit more information, a little bit more background to those characters. Yeah, yeah we do very much. Which yeah. um is, uh, like, as, it's obviously going to turn out to be kind of pivotal. However, I think that, and we've already talked about the fact that uh, James Duvall, I think, is the weak link in the chain here performance-wise for me. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and I think that that is uh, kind of no more evident than... In the scene that follows, where he goes to the bathroom on his own, <laughs> oh, what man. a waste of a scene! wait oh, shit. he said that exact. Andy, Andy said that exact
0: thing. Yeah, when yeah. you
2: go, when you look at it, it, just it it makes you crazy to see how over dramatic it is. Andy,
0: yeah, yeah, and um, there was so much about it that bothered me. I'd have been quite happy for him just because we've already established that he's a fuck up and he's a coke head. I'd have been quite happy for him to go in, take a bump of coke, and open his shirt to show that he's wearing a wire. Um, I'd have been quite happy for that, but there was a good three or four minutes of soul searching, and he's got a son, and um, oh, he's really struggling with taking coke, although we know he loves it. Uh, It's just, Ah. I I find (laughs) it could have been a far more punchy, succinct scene that didn't need to build up his character beyond the fact that he's uncomfortable with the situation out there as any sensible person would be. I just, yeah. To me, it's a lot of, it's a whole lot of nothing.
2: Yeah. He sits there posing in the mirror for like two minutes straight, looking at his abs while he's sitting <laughs> there figuring out what he's doing with the wire. This turned this turned from a uh, a crime thrower to an Crombie and Finch ad in like two 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 and a half minutes. And it's, a, you know, it's disturbing and maybe a little bit in bad taste. And there's a lot of things people could say that with this film, but to have to roll the picture of the kid in the snort coke with it. I mean, there, there's actual people I've talked to who sit back and go, why would they even go there? And I'll tell you what, it's probably because they had lack of a budget for a straw. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's a scene I could have done. I think it, obviously it serves an important purpose. We get to see the wire. We know that he is now informing the police somewhere, somehow. But I think getting to that point could have been punchier and with less bad James DeVal. You're still gonna
2: have some because he's quite bad. But right. less. Yeah, you could have had less with him. Yeah. And you you could have also I mean, you go into that bathroom and you could have not only restructured that scene, but you could have went off and maybe not had it that way where, where he pulls up. Because we never even see the wire come off. There's no payoff. In that scene, I'm, I'm sure there's a deleted scene somewhere where it's, where it's sitting in a toilet or something like that, but you don't you don't get the payoff like you do where he's fully committed to it until the end. I, I think if you just got rid of that scene altogether and maybe gave another hint or a flashback of something uh, as a conflict, I think that would work much better for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that I would agree with that it's around this time we come back to the main room at this point, And um, uh, I think that fish has lost another couple of teeth uh, <laughs> while we've had the kind of James Duval stuff. And um, fish kind of starts showing signs that he's going to talk a little bit. He starts talking about the crash that happened uh, in the aftermath of the robbery at this point. Uh, Max takes this to be an opportune moment to beat him within an inch, inch of his life.
2: <laughs> yeah. He, 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 you know, he kind of loses control. And, you know, one of the things I love about sushi girl is, How the force perspective, the way they look at, for example, the the brass knuckles, how it's in the background, then it becomes it becomes the focal point. I mean, you look at that and they always give hints, um, which might be a little bit lazy by by Kern Saxton um, and and everyone involved, where they're giving those hints on what's going to happen instead of allowing it to naturally happen. Um, You know, it's it's kind of pretty common sense on where certain things go, especially in the final act. But he takes those brass knuckles and man it's it's just it's over and over and over and maybe it's a little too excessive uh in that final frame for it
1: it is pretty gratuitous i mean also he i mean we find out after we kind of revisit the crash but he's beating him to death
2: (laughs) yeah pretty much pretty much but we don't see that though how do we know (laughs) Yeah, that, fair, you know, yeah. maybe you extracted another tooth or a nose hair or something.
0: <laughs> I tell you, get sometimes that one that one rogue nose hair uh, brings tears <laughs> to your eyes, man. That that's torture in <laughs> itself
2: yes it is you sit there you look like you're picking your nose but you're trying to get the hair people are looking at you you know yes. anyway anyway <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes absolutely um but um yeah the crash i think pretty, it's important it's important that we hit on the crash pretty I think, key scene. yeah pretty important stuff um so yeah the getaway vehicle um in flashback we see from the uh heist crashes there's a collision
0: i don't know if it's important but i noticed that the company on the side of the van that they're driving is Falkor Plumbing. I'm yes like, i don't know if that's a little
2: never-ending story joke i'm gonna say so it probably is oh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go with that yeah
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's 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 it absolutely has to be.
2: yeah um, really it, it does and and that van is i mean what they do with that van i mean it's you know the things that they reflect for like the 1970s influences on this film i mean the van looks like that creepy ass um you know van that that kids are being snatched up in or crimes are being done they they make their set pieces very influenced by the 70s
0: yeah i i don't imagine how you could drive that van down the street without being stopped every five or 10, <laughs> <laughs>
2: like five or ten You're minutes right.
0: by the police like that van is a shambles
2: oh uh, it's crazy and then the fact that that they go ahead with it and and the uh the crash that they have uh, the crash for being a low-budget indie-style oh, film is yeah. very impressive. Yeah, yeah it's, I, quite, it's
0: quite really elaborately staged, I think, considering. The, the idea of me, like, when I think about doing something like that, scares a bejesus out of me. I just wouldn't wouldn't touch it, couldn't get near it. But to see something done on a small budget
2: with a crash that impressive, pretty good. Yeah, I it's it, you know, they probably put a lot towards that in the budget, and they probably put a lot towards... The makeup, because if you notice with the torture of fish, it's all primarily face and it's it's done really, really well. So, you know, we why there might be um, issues. At least for me, with how gratuitous it might be, mm-hmm. the way that they presented and where they put the money was really smart—a really smart line producer, really smart people making the decisions.
1: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. At this point, we cycle back, and some conspiracy theories start getting thrown
0: around a little bit. Oh no, you've missed the key moment, Mitch—the oh, very a key moment. Oh, right. it. You've lost your mind, sir. I was going to deliberately gloss over it. Well, we, what we do see is that after the, in the aftermath of the crash, your man from the Dark Knight is dead. He's gone. Yeah, Nelson's gone. Yeah. Yep. Um, everyone else is scuffed up. Crow's got a fucked up arm. And um, what we get is a, a Samaritan, a wannabe Samaritan approaches the the, the <laughs> crashed van with a view to kind of helping and presumably call an ambulance whatnot and he is gunned down and uh yeah. cold, cold blood by tony todd in the street yeah seems like a kind of throwaway thing but will uh certainly come back to to haunt duke down the line yeah
2: very much so and and when you look at a scene like that um you know at the time, you're right, it's very much a throwaway to someone just being gunned down. And it's so quick and it's so reactionary. Yeah. Um. I wonder if, for me, if that needed more development. I mean, we find out later how it's connected, but if that had a little bit more development, I, I would have been more happy with it. I don't know how you guys feel about that scene.
0: I didn't have a huge problem with it at all, actually. I thought it was handled in a way that Given the characters and the situation, seemed a bit much, but kind of in line with what they've done already. They've already chopped a dude's hand off, mm. um, like it seemed in line with what they've already done. I also think
1: that it's it's kind of underdeveloped in a way that's kind of designed to serve the final reveal being a surprise.
0: Yeah,
2: fair enough. It's got also a good uh, a good uh, slapstick humor thrown in there with uh Max hitting Crow's arm as they walk by. <laughs> yeah.
0: These two guys just don't get along. They just shouldn't. No, they don't.
2: We need a back. We need a prequel to this, folks. We need a prequel. I,
1: I, I, I want the prequel to be like a ten-part Netflix comedy where they shared an apartment. <laughs>
2: Perfect strangers, look at the, yeah, look at the perfect yeah. stranger music, just, the odd couple music. Just
0: <laughs> crow with a paint roller, separating the room, like just up and down, the, <laughs> the, up and down the,
2: Don't you cross my fucking line? That's right. And then the brass knuckles come out. That's great. Oh, Lord! Oh, um, oh, God! That'd be great. Um,
1: <laughs> Uh, back in the present day, we it's established that we think that um, fish has probably died. Um, the blame game, the, the blame game kind of ensues. Francis introduces, like, coming in with a hot take, saying that he thinks that uh, this is all kind of a wider plan of Duke's to eliminate loose ends. He thinks that he paid off the police to pin this whole thing on fish then uh, Max killed the cops, now he's just kind of like clearing the decks of any other kind of outstanding threads.
0: Hitting the nail right on the fucking head. Which is like, which is like, yeah,
1: which is is accurate to a frankly unbelievable degree of specificity. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I, it, when you look at it, I mean, the tension in that room, any great crime thrower like that has those moments in it, it's how they're executed. And in this case, I, I James Duvall, actually, this is his shining moment for me in the film where he kind of does it because it fits with how over-the-top his character is, his facial tics and everything else.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that um, for the most part of this, I think that James Duvall lacks in subtlety in a way that feels like less of a choice than with some of the other big performances in this but i think that as as a reveal here i agree i think that like um uh given the what we know about the character and how he
2: acts as a way that i think performance wise this bit's probably okay yeah i i would say so as well and one thing that you guys brought up and for me i i think this was again a a victim of the budget and and time and getting the film out because it premiered at fantasia uh back in 2012 and that you know, when you have a film that's going to Fantasia, that is, you know, you have to have it done by a certain time because of the expectations. Yeah. But those those transitions from uh the transitions and the aspect of the parallels with the real to real and her face in the beginning, and then the aspect of 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 the punishment that goes to fish and flashbacking to the crash, I mean, those are very simple. Um, They don't really challenge the audience in, in, you know, moving the story along because a lot of the great crime thrillers will have moments where it completely goes off the rails of where you thought it was going and just adds another layer to the story. Kern doesn't do that with this, which, you know, watching it, it it suffices for what the device is. Other than that, I kind of wish he had a little more time and was able to explore a little bit more with those flashbacks and those transitions. Yeah,
0: I think a couple of the strands could have been teased out a little more. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Mm Yeah.
0: Um but yeah, sure sure enough, um Max comes over and uh demands to know if uh, if if in fact Francis is the the mole or a rat or whatever and he uh, rips his shirt open to reveal that in fact he doesn't have a wire on him. Presumably, like you said, Jay, he's discarded it somewhere along the line in the toilet, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um but it doesn't really matter anyway, because as soon as more or less as soon as the shirt's open, he's gunned down, shot to death by Duke's mighty hand cannon. Yeah. <laughs> Uh,
2: yes i think anything in tony todd's hands is mighty to be honest, yeah
0: they me. obviously had to get the biggest fucking gun they could get for him <laughs> like <laughs> so that it so that it didn't look like, i bet they tried loads of guns in his hand just like it looks fucking silly like I'm there's
2: su- insecurity with tony todd for sure yeah I, i've
0: <laughs> shaken that man's hand and he has big hands uh he he does he, have he's big a hands. So he's a big lad so yeah the biggest handgun they could get which as it would do blows two enormous holes right through Francis,
2: they're huge man those squibs that go off on his chest man are huge (laughs) but you know it's funny because when we talked about the mask with the flashback where he gives out the mask tony todd the the character duke says to fish that the, the newest guy gets the smallest gun not the biggest gun so there is an insecurity throughout the film
1: at this point um there's a mexican standoff here inevitably yes. between crow uh duke and max i inherently find mexican standoffs of this nature to be kind of funny um yes i th- i think that there's an inherent ridiculousness a ridiculousness to them that kind of makes them hard for me to take seriously my favorite part and i think i'm not gonna lie like i just i burst out laughing when this happened was um uh max and francis when you know that kind of escalates and i think that the dialogue and the way that the escalation in the way that they interact with each other has done pretty well but when they both yeah. start like f- shooting kind of unbelievably ineffectually each other from point blank range <laughs> <laughs> they shoot each other a, bit, a lot but like it's um and then obviously like neither like neither one kills the other and jukes just kind of like fuck this boys and just kills them both well, no,
2: <laughs> they, they shoot each other so much that they both yeah. reload their guns and shoot each other <laughs> more <laughs> it, it feels like it definitely comes out like the john woo film book Without a doubt, where just keep shooting and shooting, and eventually you'll hit your target. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, I'm a, Duke kind of loses patience, as you would. Yeah, he delivers a coup de grace to both of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Putting them both out on misery and leaving him
2: the last man standing. And he puts Andy down. He puts Max down. I mean, one of the running jokes throughout the entire time, and it's even saying that act is that he's uh, Duke's dog. And the way he puts him down is is I mean it, it might be simple it might not challenge the audience but it's definitely effective when it comes to that execution especially. I like, that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's definitely weird. And then going over to Crow, I mean, it, could there be more of a a a, a typical line that come out of his mouth before he goes? What's the line? What was the last line? Uh, I I loved you. Like a brother, something like that, something that's just so over the top and so nineteen thirties gangsterish.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I call me my buddy see?
2: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: That's
2: great. Um, oh, that's
1: great. So, yeah, Duke, for all intents and purposes, at this point, has succeeded in his plan. Last man standing. Although um, he wanders over um, to a sushi girl, kind of wonders out loud about the diamonds. Um, right. Still doesn't know where they are. Uh, eats the Last of the Fugu,
0: and, uh, well. Well, Homer well. <laughs> Simpson, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's fair yeah. to say at this point that uh, Sushi Girl is in a state of some distress, Mitch. I would say st- a state of some distress, for sure. And um, rightly so, yeah, rightly so.
1: She's uh, she's seen some stuff, or certainly heard it. Um, yeah, she has. And just when, because uh, I was kind of, I was a little bit concerned about where this was going to go from here. Um, but then yeah, the uh, the Fugu uh, incapacitates Duke pretty much instantly. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it, it, he I, I love how with with the character of Duke, when he starts to unbutton his shirt and he freezes and he looks at his hand and the way that they cut back and forth, I, I think this is one of the shining moments for Courtney Palm as, as the sushi girl with her just turning her head and just giving that smirk. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I love that scene in the, the film.
1: I, I think pretty much everything that happens from
0: here on out is pretty great,
2: actually. Yeah, I yeah.
0: agree. There's one particular shot actually that comes up in a second where um it's kinda of wide shot and it's the naked Courtney Palm standing up holding the gun on Duke. Yeah. Um, and it's kinda of played out like a single tableau. I think it's a lovely shot. Oh
1: the uh yeah, the the, the wide one of the opposite opposite yeah. sides of the table.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. With the flag behind it. And I'll tell you something, whoever the DP was for this, obviously they've had a background in some sort of uh, promotional, visual promotion because he understood how to go ahead and frame those shots for those for those press photos for the aspect of, of all promotional stuff. There was at least half a dozen shots in there you could use for promotion. And you talked about the Mexican standoff. I was hoping they would have done another shot like they did at the table where they went around and came back to uh, to Duke's character because mm-hmm. I thought that was a really smart shot in there the cinematography i don't know about you guys i think was something that throughout the film worked really well
0: if i if it was me and if it wasn't so spoilery because it's a pretty spoilery image that would be on everything yeah um, yeah because i think I, agree. I think it's fucking lovely
1: um absolutely yeah. lovely um it's important what? to hit on at this point sushi girl's motivations um, yes uh, and yeah why are
2: we here <laughs> <laughs> why is she here
1: (laughs) yes why is she here that's right you were at pains to talk about the would-be samaritan earlier and with good reason
0: yeah as it as it turns out the would-be samaritan was not traveling alone in the car that hits the
2: van Uh, no 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 no. he was with his wife
0: he was with his wife who sees her husband gunned down by tony todd Son of a bitch. Snit, you motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> something that you don't see in the initial exchange, I guess, from the the kind of point of view of the gang as they're escaping is the fact that um, Tony Todd's character Duke steals the wedding ring from the guy's finger. Yes. So this is a as it transpires, all her master plan to get this ring back and to get revenge
2: on Duke. Yeah, and and you know, you look at something like that, guys, and. Again, it's very simple what Kern Saxton does. And this is his first film, a first feature, I should say. So, you know, he's going by the book trying to get this done uh, the the best way he can. But when you look at this, I'm glad they they kept it as simple as possible for it because it's a nice payoff. The payoff is more important than the flashback in this case because she's not pregnant. They don't see her in the car. I mean, they could have went several different ways to build that drama. They don't, which I thought was really smart.
1: That is, uh, that's a really good point, actually. It's an interesting choice. It's like, yeah, the the flashback doesn't, the flashback isn't all of the story. The flashback gives you the tools for you to understand the drama in the now, I guess.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it goes back to that in a way that is kind of more protracted and more interesting than it would have been had it been the other way around. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And I really I really like the kind of uh, the final few moments, the final moments of this. I think are great.
0: Yeah, I really like it as well that she's obviously inserted herself into Duke's life after this point and has carried on through with him getting close to him because there's definitely a prior relationship between them.
2: Yes. And actually something that was not brought up was we we learn about the opening scenes where the money is thrown down in front of Sonny Chiba, how he's connected now to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Which is really, really smart to bring in someone like him to a a production like this, because it adds that style. It adds an authenticity to what they're doing. And even though it's very minimal with what he does in the film to to implement and just give a glimpse here to why she's connected to the sushi chef. Why she's connected to Tony Todd? I, again, like I said before, her character may have the biggest backstory without saying a word throughout the entire film, especially in those final frames. Yeah, because she's obviously gone through some shit
0: with Duke. I think, but I mean, that's that's quite clear for the, the very first seconds of the film. That yeah, and the time yeah. she's known she him, does. it hasn't been necessarily great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but all worth it for her, I think. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, also a nice little touch is that you actually learn what happens to the diamonds. Right. And I really like that it's just uh, that
2: they all just kind of spilled out on the road. No one had the diamonds. No, no one had it. Well, we don't know that, though, because that's a lot of money she throws down at Sunny Chiba. So I'm not so sure about that. And one thing I I think is a little bit in poor taste. You don't see very many tears over her husband's corpse when she picks up that diamond.
1: No, 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 no. That's true. No, no, the power of money, there. So so are you positing then that she used the diamonds and kind of therefore newfound wealth to kind of stage something like this?
2: Yes, I definitely think that she did that. Um, And just from those clues that are thrown out there, because I understand from what I've seen on on the life she took and the path of revenge she took, but she's a smart character. She's an empowering character, Mm -hmm. an empowering, empowering female character. I think that 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 is the way it went, based on how it was written and how it was presented.
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, this must have taken some planning. Um, so I think having that disposable cash handy um, would have certainly helped her with mm-hmm. this. And I like that it's all worked out exactly the way she hoped it would, and she hasn't really had to lift a finger.
2: Yeah. Very. It's very true. Within and uh, there's other pieces that come together that leave it a little bit ambiguous. But again, when you see the ending of this film. And Andy, I don't know how you feel about this, but a lot of times it's a no-no for filmmakers to edit their own projects. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of them feel it's not something good. Kern Saxton edits this, and he's an editor by trade, and I think that adds uh, a different level because he's so intimate with the material. I think it comes together well because he is the editor.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Well, I don't edit my own stuff because I'm shite at it. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I think there's a a tendency perhaps to get over-attached to things um and you right. you lose that that ability to th- kind of detach and see what's perhaps best for the project and i think going back to the scene with james deval in the toilet i think that's one of those scenes where saxton obviously loves it right but right in the hands of another editor they might have went look i took half of that out because it was fucking nonsense we didn't (laughs) didn't need it true or or i took the whole bit out and then you have the argument about ah well i like it can we keep a wee bit and then you get the kind of a back and forth to be had at that point but i think when i Director edits their own films then there is the the tendency to be you can be self-indulgent Yeah,
2: you very much can and it's not
0: it's not coming from a bad place of self-indulgence It's coming from an attachment to the material that you've got
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with you on the attachment that you have with it and you wonder if we you know and this might be in the defense of sushi girl You know, the editing might have been something that that would have changed the entire film. The tortures, the way they interact, how much more of a backstory is built. Mm -hmm. So the editing really, in this case, is a huge key uh, to what this film is and how people perceive it, I would think. Yeah, but
0: overall, I've got, no again, no problem with the edit. Um, There's just some some of those little moments where I think a, a hand who was perhaps a bit more removed from the project, like a hired editor, would have been beneficial.
1: Yeah, yeah i mean at this point we're pretty much out but um the film ends on obviously kind of a cuts to black on what you're presuming is going to be the kill shot on right. uh, Duke. um i really like the run-up to this uh the kind of russian roulette style yeah of her loading the gun and kind of dispatching her speech as she fires off
2: and i think that that's all great and yeah she kills him and we're out yeah and we're out with it and and uh, you know what as as she walks out of that restaurant how does dave reynolds survive that blast from the truck
0: lost oh, yeah. fire? he is he is incredibly close to that explosion like, <laughs> if that man wasn't already bald he has no more hair left on his head oh
2: my god it, it's a very much a simple payoff but it's a very satisfying payoff which i think is one of the reasons why people walk out of the theater watching. I think I think they would feel good about how things ended.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that for a film that goes down some
0: very dark roads, it comes out on a really triumphant note.
2: Yeah, very much so. And, well said.
0: And <laughs> yeah, and and co- correctly, I would say correctly triumphant because I think if if a bad fish, a bad guy hadn't been dead and had kind of hobbled out of there at the end like the hero it doesn't have the same impact as this girl getting her revenge after working so fucking hard to get there. Yep. Uh, yeah.
2: But you know what? I think it falls though. And this is the criticism I have of the film. I think from the first moment when he's on that payphone, I'm, I'm talking about fish and basically there's a disconnect. First of all, it feels like it's in Armageddon. We're, we're seeing a scene from Armageddon. First of all, <laughs> second of all, when it, when it comes to it, I think pretty much his number is done. As soon as that click here, as soon as he hears that click. And for me, it, it kind of takes away because he's starting his life over and there's really nothing good about it whatsoever. He was better off in jail than he was there. So for me, I think that cheapens it a little bit in the beginning and takes away where he's just the character who is a punching bag in a lot of instances, which is a shame. Again, a different editor, more money, more whatever. I think that might have been remedied a little bit more.
0: Yeah, because the film makes these vague attempts to kind of paint him as the hero. Um, yeah make him endearing your, that you want to connect yeah as your key protagonist but really he like you say rightly he's a meat bag yeah
2: uh, yeah and
0: he's and got he,
2: nice teeth though <laughs> uh
0: and he, yeah treated, what's left of him yeah he's treated like a meat bag <laughs> and uh oh my god that's so good andy
1: you like you say this was this wasn't the first watch but you'd gone in yeah not, like with kind of very faint recollections of it
0: i would say very vague Recollections as, putting it lightly, I, I remembered the ending and uh-huh. that was about... I, I couldn't really remember... And I, I'd certainly forgotten how, how dark it gets um, and how uh, how unflinching it gets in its portrayal of uh, the torture. But I didn't really have a massive problem with it. Um, I thought it was, like you say, Jay, it's one of those films that's fallen through the cracks a little bit. Um, And I think there is a lot to to like about it, but at the same time, I struggle with some of it. I struggle with some of the characterization. I struggle with some of the performance, and I struggle with some moments that could have been that wee bit tighter and that little bit more impactful.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think the one thing, Andy and and Mitch, the one thing you can pull out of this, whether you like it or you don't, is this is the, the little engine that could it really came from nothing and it was he was current saxon was able to create something and it's a very likable film but at the same time you you have your share of issues mm-hmm. and you know it doesn't really challenge the audience a whole hell of a lot except for maybe a little bit emotionally yeah, i think it's
0: fairly I, I think there's some fairly clever stuff in here towards the end i think the okay the, the roads that it takes to get to the end are quite interesting and the final the kind of twists you kind of telegraph it coming. I think the minute he goes to eat the fugu, yeah. you know right away yeah. that that the how that's going to go because it's explained earlier and obviously the Simpsons told us. Um, <laughs> but I don't have a massive <laughs> issue with the film at all. It's more entertaining than I remembered it being. I think that
1: you're hitting on something important when you say because I agree. I think that I um I like this more as it went on um to, and then and I think that like I, I think that by the time you're hitting the third act, it's really hit stride, and um I would say that what I would when it was kind of starting out, I would say I had some kinda of, some of the dialogue kinda of rankled with me a little bit and um we've do some of the problems that we've talked about. But I think that it's one of those films that I think one thing we've talked about it quite a lot from a technical angle. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've got more of an appreciation for it on that level now. But I think also it was one of those films that by the time it had ended there was like enough goodwill in the chamber for me to kind of let the stuff that bothered me about it kinda of slide. Yeah. Okay. So I, oh yeah, I came out on the right side I came out on the right side of the line with this one, I think. Okay, Good.
2: cool. Good.
1: Um, Jay, before we finish up, you got anything that you want to talk about? Anything you want to plug?
2: Well, um, now I mean now, now with Horror Happens, it's all short form. So once a week on SoundCloud, you can find the Horror Happens radio show with a uh, with a weekly episode, uh, much shorter than it was before. And mm-hmm. I'm still on the trek for film festivals. I'll be at Fright Fest this year, oh, celebrating cool. 20 years. So I'll see you guys. Uh, out there god willing and uh Amazing, you know yeah. check out horror hound and dread central because i'm working with them now too excellent great stuff excellent and Jay social media where can people get you you can uh find us at soundcloud.com forward slash horror dash happens or and uh horror happens dot com and on twitter um at j y k y there okay. we go
0: Cool. Uh, Jay, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. We will see you in August, my friend. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Jay, this has been an absolute pleasure. Good speaking to you again. And yeah,
2: hope to see you in August. I look forward to it, guys. Thank you. It's been an honor being on here. And uh, it's a wonderful show. I I love listening to the episodes previous. And you guys... A, you guys do a tremendous job in breaking down the films, and uh, Andy, it's great to be on the other side of the mic for a change. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's odd for me, <laughs> but, uh,
0: yeah. but yeah, thanks so much for coming on and doing this, man. Uh, it's, I've, I've had a blast, and it was nice to revisit this and actually remember it.
2: Well, thank you very much, and I'm glad it's coming out through the cracks. Make sure you empty your bowels, my friend. Oh, yeah, well, yeah,
0: I'll get right on that.
2: <laughs> I'll talk to you guys soon. Che- Have a good one. Cheers, Jerry. Take
1: it easy. Well, a great chat to start the new year. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, well, I guess that's us back in it then. Yeah, 100%. Back in harness. <laughs> big thank you, JK from Horror Happens Radio. Yes. Taking indeed. the time to discuss Sushi Girl with us today. Um, really good chat, I thought.
0: Yeah, do you know what I love? I love having people that I spoke to years ago on the show. Yeah, and I can And then kind of catching yeah. up with people. I mm-hmm. think that's great.
1: Yeah, and um, it's going to be really cool to meet him, hopefully, at fast. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But I suppose that takes us just about to the end of another one. Christ, hi. Yeah. First main episode down. Big thank you to everybody that's checked it out and uh, kind of stuck with us through the winter break. Yes, indeed. Thank you, guys. And it's back to business as usual. We will be back on Monday... 8am GMT with another mini-sode, where we will, of course, do all the usual stuff. We'll talk about what we've been watching. We'll take a look at your feedback. We will, of course, play Mitch's Pitches. Hey! And we will announce the guest in film for next Friday's episode we will indeed so in the meantime if you want to get in touch we'd obviously love that Facebook and Instagram Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC and although no one ever does you can email us at Strong Language Scenes at gmail.com
0: yes indeed please 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 fill up that barren fucking inbox that we've got yeah before uh, before Google cancels our email account out of lack of use yes indeed and by the way Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, Mitch, but we're just about everywhere you can listen to podcasts now. Almost. Yeah. Um, And wherever you are listening, please, please take the time. just takes a wee click just to like us or share us or subscribe. Or if you're feeling particularly generous, then leave us a review. Yeah. That would be smashing. That would be nice, unless it's a bad review, in which case, please do keep it to yourself. Yeah, fuck off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And of course, big thank you to our pals at Podbean for handling the hosting side of things.
0: Yes, heroes in disguise, Mitch.
1: We'll be back on Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget that it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Good night. After.